0: Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. My name is Chad. I am joined again this week by Dan and Adrian, and this week we have a special guest that I can't wait to introduce you to, Mr. Josh Geigel. Josh is the CEO of Virgin Hyperloop, and if you don't know what Hyperloop is, uh, just hold on to your seats. Josh will explain it in the episode. It's going to blow your mind. We really dive deep into the topic of innovation with Josh and he has so, he has such good insight and so many great things to say on the topic. Of course, I want to remind you that if you are up against anything as a leader or with your team and you wanna talk with somebody about it, there's a link in the description of this episode. Go ahead and click that. We would love to hear from you. Now let's dive in with Josh. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. My name is Chad. As usual, I'm here with Adrian and Dan. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing great. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for having me. Awesome. So great to be with you guys again. We have a guest this week that I'm really excited to talk with. Josh Geigel from Hyperloop One. Josh, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to to give you just a moment um, right here at the top to let you introduce yourself to, uh, to our audience, give us a little bit of background, who you are, what you're about, family life, all of that kind of stuff, position at Hyperloop. We'd love to just hear from your perspective. Who's Josh?
1: All right. It's a, it's a deep one. Uh, So I am the, (laughs) the son of uh, two engineers. I am the husband to an engineer, the brother to an engineer and uh, the father of a soon to be engineer. (laughs) So, uh, no
0: pressure, no, no pressure,
1: no pressure, but, uh, no, so I'm 36 whopping age of 36. I've got a wife now of almost nine years and we've got a little two and a half year old, uh, engineer by, by background engineer by almost by birthright and by interest and by all of the above. But, uh, the, the starting point of, of my career was really kind of in the garage with, with my dad, which was learning, learning how to be an engineer and the thing that i always found really fascinating is you know being 12 or 13 years old like working on a car with my dad and watching something go wrong or whatever it might be um that that was really the opportunity i think to to learn about something And, and when i said i kind of thought he was the smartest person in the world right like how does he know how to fix all these things and you know, his response to me was, I don't, but I'm an engineer and I know how to solve problems. And so he had to kind of work his way through it. And that really became, you know, really started kind of this love affair of uh, being being an engineer and then ended up going to school and uh, did my undergrad at Penn State, my grad school at, at Stanford. And then I actually met my wife during an internship in at NASA, of all places. And uh, both of us deciding those are, we didn't want to work at NASA. But that was the the opportunity for us, I think, to to really kind of grow, start our journey together and and grow from there, and then be apart while we're going to school and then back together and started my career at uh, SpaceX in late 2008, early 2009. um, Right after really the first successful launch that they had, and then all the way through docking with the space station a number of years later, Um, and then really learned a lot. You know, got way too much responsibility as a young kid coming out of school. And there's nothing that really pressures you and pushes you to be a good engineer than watching something you go up. And if you're wrong or if you make a mistake uh, you watch something explode or you watch it come back down really fast. Um, so it's an opportunity to have a, a real kind of formative experience where you're, you're looking at the, you know, the success of the company is based on kind of every decision that you make. We are a small company at the time and everything. So I really love that experience, but I started to get a little bit more excited about wanting to do things more, I'll say, terrestrial and sustainable. Uh, so I, I left there to go to a small company in Ohio called EchoGen Power Systems and uh, to lead the research and development group there. And it was kind of like a mini CTO in that role. And the goal was to learn how to communicate a heck of a lot better because I was not a good uh, communicator of technical ideas. The CEO had some good advice for me and, and challenged me on that. Uh, and then really got the opportunity to learn to do that, to see a completely different industry, learn a new way to solve problems, and then ultimately decided to come back to California. And in the middle part of 2014, came uh, through a former colleague and uh, venture capitalist talking about Hyperloop, and then it just became a little bit of an obsession and got so excited about it, I ended up quitting my job and going to a garage to start us on the journey that we're still on today.
0: So, what is the journey? Tell, tell, talk really just about the journey of Hyperloop One and your position there.
2: So the journey has been, and make that, and make that real quick, Josh. Too, you know, because I, I know that at least we haven't said yet, Virgin Hyperloop. So talk about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that,
2: that's that piece as well. That's good, Jeff.
1: So we we started in November of 2014 in the garage with this. I'll say insanely naively crazy idea about trying to reinvent the way that people move um in hindsight it sounds a lot more crazy than it felt um which is which is always i guess interesting to to look back on there and and the goal was to see and, and understand kind of like the best of the other modes of technology and then reinvent something that is kind of solving the problems of, of this century and solving the opportunities that technology has has given us in, in this way. And um, so we started and we were really focused on kind of the technology. How do you get there? And I think looking back, not as focused on what does it take to build a successful company, right? Because a successful company is required to build a successful product. And so there was that little bit of um, altruistic engineer that was just all about the product, all about the product, all about the product. As as you started, and really the challenging challenge of starting a business was, I'll say we we didn't spend as much time on it as I think we we could have and should have at the time, and um, it took a lot of growing, a lot of opportunity there, and and the goal was really to show that this could be safe, this could be something that worked like as soon as possible, you know, something that would be possible in you know ten or 10 to 15 years from that moment in the garage all the way to I'll say having something start and demonstrating it, that it could be successful very, very quickly, that um, this is not something that's 30, 40, 50 years away. This is something that's really 10, 15 years away at, the, at that point. Um, so the goal was to build quick. It was to build a team fast. It was to raise a lot of, uh, a lot of capital. Um, it was to basically just go, 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 go um, as, as we did that. And <clears throat> We, we built up, built up the team, grew very quickly, found headquarters here in Los Angeles, uh, found a test site in Las Vegas, and just began working and working and working. And then uh, we we got into like the middle of 2017 when Virgin, who the brief stint between Echogen and uh, starting this company, I was at Virgin Galactic for about six months. And that was the the moment where I... I left, they had a couple of the leaders ask where I was going. I didn't tell them where I was going. And so when Richard Branson and the Virgin team came back out the site, you know, they brought kind of my former boss out to do some evaluation and some due diligence and really kind of returned home in a way with, you know, Virgin on the door. So they became an investor, a partner, um, and all the like in the middle of 2017. So about two and a half years after we started as a company. Uh, And really the, the opportunity is then to just like build as quickly as we can, show it can work, and then ultimately prove people that, you know, what, what people thought and told us in various, you know, I'll say dozens and dozens of meetings was impossible, is is, is in fact possible, and it's something that we can do uh, in the very short term.
3: Josh, can you uh, describe what it is that people say is impossible, and what the, what the implications are, because it is possible, what does that mean, both? to moving humans and, and, and renewability, that kind of thing.
1: So what we are as a product just very briefly is we're, we call ourselves the fifth mode of transportation, right? We're not a plane, we're not a boat, we're not a train, we're not a car. And we we want to take again, the best of some of these other modes and translate it into a new type of transportation without a lot of the things that we, we hate about it. So, you know, I've got a little two and a half year old and And typically, if you ask the kid today, when would his favorite program be on, it would be on whenever he or she wants it to be on. It wouldn't be on at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning, right? But yet, if you look at the way that we move, the way that we transport around the world, we go by somebody else's timetable when it's convenient for them, not when it's convenient for us. And what we wanted to have is a transportation system that A, reduced wait time, B, took you at a very, very high speed, and then C, did that responsibly and sustainably without you know, destroying the world around us. And, and so what we came up with was a, you know, a, taking the, the white paper that Elon Musk had published in 2013 and just redoing a lot of the foundational technology inside of it. Um, we have these little individual pods that go at the speed of an aircraft in, sorry, individual in terms of about 25 to 30 passengers. They go at the speed of an aircraft inside of a tube. We take most of the air out of that tube. So it'd be like flying at about 200,000 feet of altitude or about five times higher than a normal aircraft. So you can go the speed of an aircraft for about 10 times less energy consumption. These smaller vehicles, what they also allow you to do is go directly to your destination. So unlike a train that's stopping at every place along the way and slowing itself down and speeding itself up, You can just go directly to your destination to, to get there and reduce the total time. And then lastly, because they're smaller, you are able to have a significantly smaller or less waiting time. So you get people onto the system and you can do that, you know, only waiting two or three minutes, not hours like an aircraft or even, you know, multiple minutes or 30, 40, 50 minutes, like a train, you show up to the station when you want to you get on a pod it goes directly to your destination it does that electrically it does that autonomously and it will get you there at the speed of an aircraft for a fraction of the emissions so it's a uh, it's about as close to a utopian transportation system as you can you can imagine but the goal is to then just really build that and show that this was possible to really reimagine the way that people are moving and connecting and the way that goods are flowing across you know not just cities or individual projects but across like nation states
0: That's great. Thanks, Josh. I want to, I want to also be clear. I, i said the the name of your company wrong a couple of times, (laughs) so it's Virgin Hyperloop, not Hyperloop one. So thank you. I appreciate that correction. Um, so I wanted to, one thing that I thought would be really interesting to talk to you about, and I don't think we've touched much on it in this podcast. Um, and it's, and it's a unique perspective that you could add a ton to, I think is, is the idea of innovation. I think we, our work, we talk, so we talk a lot about relationship innovation. We talk a lot about communication innovation, and, um, it's maybe not as impair uh, as apparent in our work that it is innovation that we're talking about, but it's so apparent in your work that everything is about innovation. I would assume, um, that's, that's my perception of it. I'm wondering, do you, you know, how do you think about innovation? What's required for innovation. And I would love to see if there's some parallels between our work and the work that you guys are doing as far as what's required and, and how is it incubated? What's the environment that innovation is, is, uh, ripe for growth.
1: That's a, that's a good one. There's a lot of different ways we can go with this one, but the way I would really describe is innovation comes from, couple of different key features. One is is space, space to be able to innovate, right? Like not having too many constraints, not having an environment that's overly harsh, or you know, you need you need freedom um, to be able to, to do that. So that's like the the facility in which innovation occurs. The other thing is you need kind of a, a deep in some cases you need deep expertise, subject matter expertise. In other cases you need a broad amount of expertise. Um, because there's different types of innovation. I'd say like really niche, really focused innovation that just comes from taking on new ideas and then the others come from a breadth of ideas and seeing how somebody solved this problem in this space that you can adapt to some other type of space and you're able to, to come up with something new. Um, so so it's, it's kind of the depth, it's the breadth, it's the space to do that. And then above all else, it's this curiosity, right? This, I'll say a little bit of a relentless drive And there's a bit of a downside with this too. There's a, there's a relentless drive to do something better. Right. And, and for me kind of at an individual at a personal level, things can always be better. It doesn't matter how much, how much progress we've made, how well um, things currently are. There's always a way to do it better, cheaper, or faster, or whatever it might be. Um, So there's kind of like this relentless pursuit. And then with somebody, like me, who's actually more engaged by the, per, the the climb than the summit, it can be something that becomes a little bit self-fulfilling. Like at some point, you do have to stop innovating because you have to release something. You actually have to put <laughs> something out into the wild, right? Like if you just keep going on and on and on and never release anything, you can't build a business. And uh, so so it's the spot of like, when do you say this is good enough for what we're doing now? We push that out and then we continue to have that next next levels of innovation and the like. So it's, it's the space, it's a mindset, it's a determination, but it's also a degree of, of expertise, right? Like, you know, you can take, you could take 30 random people and you could put them into a marching band, right? And it's all the same instruments. It's all the same notes, but if you're not leading them in the right way, if you're not have the expertise of how to play the individual instruments and how to read music of how to play in harmony with others, um, in time and all that other stuff, then it's, you know, just creates dissidence and it creates a um, environment in which it actually is like detrimental to progress, because if you don't know what good music is, you know, you won't actually be able to create good music. So you need to know what good technology is. You need to see the speed of what the art of the possible is to show you the opportunity. And that gives you that, that deep foundation to, to do whatever you need to do, but it also gives you the forum for creating you know something—something something that's brand new.
3: Yeah, you know, you hit the made a lot of sense. Like the space to experiment, to do, but which requires a deep, you know, a broad, often broad and sometimes deep subject matter knowledge, and then the persistent, the persistence of curiosity. Like you just don't give up. I mean, I can imagine. Like, I'd love to hear some of the things that you've worked through because I just recently you guys launched that pod and it was successful, and, and, you know, everybody was nervous, and you guys worked through a ton of stuff. It was a huge win, but, you know, what what are some of the things that you persisted through to get to that kind of, that kind of breakthrough?
1: There's a, there's a laundry, laundry laundry list, Dan, on uh, things that we, we kind of persisted to, but the, the outcome was, the nice thing about you know, innovations at the outcome or that we were doing there was that the outcome was clear. Like success was measured in a binary sense. Like was someone able to get on a pod? And then most importantly, was someone able to get off of it, right? So success is pretty easily, clearly able to be articulated. Um, in terms of us getting
2: And In this case, the someone was you, right? So yes, I was going to
1: say- In this case, <laughs> you know, I, I had a vested interest in success of this project. Okay. Um, <laughs> Upon this
3: time. Uh, that one went about
1: 110 miles an hour, but uh, I mean, that comes to a little bit, you know, this, that we're talking about leadership here. There's a, there's a view that I have that, you know, I think leaders should lead from the pr- front and then leaders should have a deep understanding and appreciation for what their, the team they're leading is attempting to do. And, and so there is always this, I'll say this like maybe too glorious of a, of a adage for this, which is like the general who leads from the field or the, uh, the Roman architect who would stand under his scaffolding when he built his arch. Right. So this idea that it took more than just him, it took the team to be able to do this and to create the success. But at the end of the day, you're there to absolve or absorb in some cases, the failure of, of your team. And I think that that's a, it's a pretty big hallmark of what I, what I really subscribe to as a, as a leader is that like, you know, don't ask somebody to do something you're not willing to do yourself. Um, Maybe not necessarily capable, but willing, willing are two different things. And then to like, be, be willing to do it right. Like it shows faith in your team that like, Hey, you're trusting your team to do something that that would be hard. And I think in this particular case, we had a variety of challenges. We had a really small team um, the level of in-depth work it would take to actually use an independent safety assessment process, I think was really trying, it was really taxing on us as a group, but we had to do that. We had to learn how to do that so that we could ultimately be transporting billions of passengers around the year. Uh, we had a you know a young team who had never had the responsibility of a human life in their hands before. So the, the challenges, the risk aversions that go with that, and how to say that like at some point we do need to take some level of risk, right? You have to get out of bed in the morning. You have to take that level of risk willing to, uh, to do this. And then uh, we had the COVID situation, which presented a unique and unforeseen, you know, level of challenge with management, which is all of a sudden, you know, a lot of my style, which is a little bit more hands-on, it's a little bit more face-to-face all of a sudden gets put behind the screen we're all in our own areas. We're not able to make physical progress because it can be on site for three months. Um, and you you start to see it straining. When the team came back together, you could see this pandemic straining people. You know, even some some people use the phrase, like we're here working under the specter of death, you know, with this fam- this vaccine, uh, the pandemic and that was going on and really trying to get people on board that like, yes, there's still things going on in the world, but we do have to make progress as a company because you know, our success you know, depends on it. Um, and so there was just a, a variety of things that the team getting in the technical challenges, but also the, the organizational challenges of trying to deal with the team. That's um, you know, it's not the same environment that it was in 2019 to do, to, to work, even to live.
0: To so that. To that question, Dan, I'm glad you asked that because Josh, you said something before we started the conversation, before we started recording the conversation, which, you know, you said within you is this like desire to get back up and keep going. What I heard was, or, or what the the label that I put on it was resilience, this resiliency of like, it doesn't really matter how many times you fall. It matters how many times you're willing to get back up. Um, and I'm curious, do, have you thought about, or have can you have you, do you have some sort of realization as to where this became part of your character? Like it, was there an experience in your life? Was it growing up with some engineers? What, what, how, how did this get, get baked in?
1: It's a good, it's a good question. Cause I will say in the early part of my career, like I was very resilient technically. Like if I made a mistake, um, I would learn from it and move forward. If I wanted to learn something new. It was like, Oh, I don't know how to do this. Like that might knock, knock people down, but it was like, all right, I'll keep going. Um, but I will say I was not, I'll say I was not resilient early in my career to existential things that were going on with the organization. I could, not reinvent myself in a way that, um, was, was conducive to like growth, right? I guess is the, the way I would describe it. And so it's SpaceX in the first, you know, first kind of three and a half years of my career there, you know, things are going really well at SpaceX, right? We would launch, you know, there was not, they had some hard times before I joined the company and largely speaking, were really successful thereafter. So you didn't really experience that, you know, need to kind of reinvent yourself. And um, there was a moment when I went to the company, Ohio Echogen, where a huge amount of funding fell through. One of the head engineers ended up leaving the organization Um, And I kind of recalled back, you know, a conversation I'd had with my dad maybe a couple of years before and multiple times throughout my life, which is like, there's always, you know, there's always opportunities and for, and in every minute of every day to be a, to be a leader. Right. And um, I remember at that time seeing like, wow, the company just hit a road bump. And that was the first time I'd really experienced a road bump as a company. Um, And so like, what was, what was the reaction to that was, the moment I saw that I sent an email to the CTO who's my boss at the time um, I sent him an email and said hey what can I do to help you so that you can focus on the loss of this individual is there things I can offload more work I can do and and the like and it 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 facilitated a very different response than I thought which was him seeing me as a tool to help him get to his success uh, but it still you know it was kind of those initial things and the company got to a spot where eventually um, I just couldn't see myself being at it anymore because it was, it was becoming like hard. Like it was becoming pretty hard. Uh, my, my, my team had been, been shrunk and I just didn't feel like I had the kind of incentive to, to want to go, go on. And I think again, like not the same type of resiliency that I, I have now, but what really happened starting this company and and something I didn't understand. So after I decided I was going to quit my job and start the company, my dad, who had started this huge division in his company. Now he said, well, you're not a dad yet, but you'll quickly understand what I mean. And I didn't understand what he meant for about two, two years until we started going through some hard times as an organization. And then all of a sudden there was like this, this just like belief that like, it's not going to fail because of me. And that like, it's going to work. I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can. And I will, you know, I will, I will just keep working and keep working. And so I think that's at some point there was like a switch that flipped that like, because I started this and there's such a high degree of ownership that like the level of resilience had to be manufactured because there was nobody else. It could be's fault or responsibility to bring you back out to, to the light or to the success. And that's where like kind of that, people talk about the burden of leadership, but there's also the opportunity of leadership is that I think there are probably a couple of times in the course of the country or company, where if I made a different decision, maybe the company ends up falling apart or it ends up not, uh, or it ends up you know coming through. And like, that's a pretty big amount of opportunity for you to, to go that way. And, and I'll say it didn't really come to manifest until about 2016 here. Um, and now it's sort of at the time it's, it's like, how is it, uh, I guess how did you live before that? Um, I'll say uh, a lot less stressful. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that one hundred percent. But the rewards like really high. Like when the company, you know, the way I kind of describe it to to my wife is like it's a exposed nerve when the company is going really well. It feels as good as anything you could possibly imagine. Like riding in the pod last November, like that was about as great of an experience as I possibly could have ever t- told you emotionally, physically, uh, mentally, the, the whole thing. Um, but when it goes bad, it's it's an exposed nerve and it feels very personal and it feels like you're failing and it feels all of those other things that go with having something that means so much to, to you and to what you know, your, your success is.
2: Yeah, well, that's one of the things I, I really adore about you, Josh, and, and respect is, and I was going to use that word personal, you know, I, I, you know that you, you take your work on like it's a part of you. Now, and a lot of people would say that's a bad idea for like lots of mental health reasons. <laughs> lots of, you know, lots of family therapists would say bad idea. Um, and, but you, you know, you, you take it. So a couple things, the resiliency comes from, no, no, this is personal. Because if it's just a thing, if it's just a part of me, then fine, I'll be fine. And then, you know, if, I, if I'm if i up for my biggest, if my biggest game in life is self-preservation or my own ego and how I look in my own eyes whether what other people think about me, then fine. I can cut off this arm and it's okay. I can function. Um, but you, you know, you've decided this is, you know, your baby, right? And mm-hmm. you've decided that it's still going to be yours. And... you know, as you continue to develop and push through and and keep, you know, going for new frontiers in the work itself, it's yours. That's, you know, I, I really appreciate that about you. Like you're putting your name on things and you know, if anyway, come what may. And
1: and I think like, I think that, that aspect of like, you know, willing to stand behind any decision, both good or bad, like that actually directly came from uh, SpaceX and the, the, the culture of having single point accountability for something that could single point blow up the rocket. Right. Which is like, Hey, if this fails, like everybody knows whose responsibility it was. Right. And there's, and <laughs> and that, so was that,
2: you. Yeah. that was you.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. Or in every, but the variety of engineers that are there at that time, you know, each had you know, half dozen or dozen parts that were like their unique responsibility. Right. And if something went wrong, you didn't have to look to a team or some obscure group. It was like, no, that's Steve, or that's John, or that's Sarah, or that's Josh or whatever it might be. Um, so there came basically a high level of visibility. And uh, in a way, like there's, I read a book a while back that was talking about uh, old, old rock climbers. Right. And uh, you don't, you don't see people that are old rock climbers that aren't very good. It's kind of, it self selects. Right. (laughs) And, uh, so that, that spot of like the people who've kind of been there, who, who know it, who've gone through it, who've had kind of those scars and had some of the experiences, like you end up creating really good bond that it feels like, yeah, if you're here on this mountain, so to speak, you're here because you deserve to be here and you're still here because of the talent and the skill that you've got. And, um, that, that I think really puts you to the spot where like, Hey, there's going to be no more public of a failure than if your part makes a mistake when the vehicle's being launched. And, um, and I know that's, that's, it's interesting, you know, leading the team now where we have the opportunity where we can kind of ease ease into testing, right? And so you can be a little bit more cautious. You could be a little bit more conservative. So how does that affect uh, the risk posture of the company and, and the willingness of engineers to take risks back to like the innovative question, like how willing are you able to push and, and to drive knowing that you can you know, work your way into eventually where I need to go. So it's been an interesting part, like watching people's natural risk postures and dispositions as you go through. And how do you, I'll say, optimize that for the collective program so that you can make the progress that you need to and then adjust the individual levels where where appropriate.
3: Yeah, you know, to what Adrian was saying, I think the way it struck me it has struck me over the years working with you is you're willing to be dominated by the problem. It's not like, I mean, you kick and fight and scratch about it, but you do not let that sucker go. And that's inspiring. <laughs> I mean, I here I, I mean, a couple of times we talk and we get back on the phone and you were right back at it. You just needed some time off, yeah. I, I think that I really do think that that's a key leadership characteristic: is is that willingness to get up and let don't you're willing to be dominated by the problem until it's solved.
1: So, so Dan, I'll tell you just something. Uh, it's introspective into uh, the <laughs> to, to the person here, but the first you know, I become a pretty avid cyclist since my time in California over the last decade or more, and. The very first time I went on a bike ride and a long bike ride in California, like an 80 plus, I didn't know how to fuel. I took water. I didn't took any energy bars or anything like that. And we were up in the Santa Monica's and we did this, this Canyon called Latigo Canyon. Um, it's a pretty long, like 2000 foot climb and about halfway up. Uh, I just had to get off my bike. I just couldn't do it. I just completely bonked. Um, and I'll tell you, every single time I do that Hill now I do it twice out of spite. Like, every single time, because I can't stand the fact that it beat me at one point. And so now I have to punish it by going up it two times in a row, uh, no matter how long or how far into the ride, it's like, I'm always doing that hill twice just to make sure it remembers that like it broke me once, but it won't break me again. Do you, do you think it respects
2: you by the end? John? <laughs> the no, I just
1: really think I'm a crazy person, but, uh, you know, I you. at least feel a lot better about it. So yeah. <laughs>
0: I was gonna. That's what I was gonna ask, Adrian. How much does the hill care?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the so
3: you know, If it's in California, probably cares a lot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, my my thought is this, and something you you connected to earlier, Josh. Um, you know, because there's a, there's an aspect of resilience that like I'm gonna overcome, and then there's an aspect of that I will rein. Uh, how do i even say this there's a i'm going to make it fit to my will that's sometimes what people call resilience or there's also like a, i'm going to reconstitute myself in order to connect with what's needed to to you know to overcome and both end up being resilience one's a harder path. I think one is harder. Well, both are hard. Both are both, you know, uh, there's one that, you know, I have to end up making circumstances fit what I'm up to. The other one is I got to give up myself, even like the, the things that aren't working, but are familiar, like aspects of self that are like not working, but familiar. You probably know what I'm talking about. Um, hopefully listeners do the, um, but I, you know I'm willing to reconstitute myself for the sake of the mission because that's what's needed. Otherwise, you know my future looks a lot like what old Adrian can dominate. Now, so I'm curious about um, that tension as you know you've taken over the CEO position in the recent months, um, and you're you know you keep upping your personal Andy in, you know. Anyway, it'd be cool to hear that about that for you and what you're thinking about and that tension as you keep thinking about how you must reinvent yourself to you know to uh meet the needs of the organization and the mission
1: yeah it's uh I'll say the the juxtaposition can be really difficult right because when you to be innovative or to do something you know innovative is to basically tell you <laughs> is to try to do something that hasn't been done before, or people say can't be done. Right. And so you have to be, in some cases you have to be kind of stubborn in your belief that uh, if we do it this way, it will work out. Mm-hmm. Right. Or if we, if we do this, it will become a product that you can never imagine. Right. And so in one cases you have to be, I'll say rigid in the sense that like, I don't want to, I don't want to bend to what you want me to do because it's going to create an inferior product. Right. And, uh, or I don't want to compromise my way to whatever this might be, because it's going to cause something that's not as good as the the, the goal. And I, and I want that ultimate best goal. Uh, and then the flip side is. It's uh, it can be a lonely, it can be a hard road sometimes, right? To convince people that you're correct. In some cases, I know you know a number of people who've been unable to, right? And there've been times over the last you know five six years here that like I've been unable to convince people that what I was thinking was the right thing to do. In some cases, it was the right thing not to do it, right? So I learned. But in some cases, you look and said, "Well, we should have done that because it would have turned out better." Um, so it's it's a battle right and i think I think the part that becomes difficult is that that always that requires a fine that requires a certain amount of energy and the pool is finite right and the thing that I think I've learned over time is like if I want to you know die on every hill, there's gonna be lots of deaths I experience versus you know ultimately trying to get to the goal which is like the right hill right it's one thing to die on a hill that's you know, meaningful. It's something else to die on a hill that doesn't matter at all. And you know, in training, <laughs> in training for some Ironman stuff I'm doing, there's this blog post that this guy wrote. He goes, "You don't need to be king of random hill 123." And that's kind of this this view here is like, don't go and burn yourself out on something that's not the ultimate goal that you need to. And I think earlier in my career and earlier, certainly at this company, I was just like fighting kind of fighting the whole thing in a way like i wanted this to be done this way i wanted this to be done this way and i wanted this to be done that way and it was kind of coming at the expense of empowering my team and trusting my team and then really leveraging leveraging my my team to be successful and you know started to to read a little bit more work with 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 you two and kind of this there's a there's a steve steve jobs quote like we don't hire great people to tell them what to do we hire great people for them to tell us what to do but that's really hard to do. Like, it's really, it's really easy to say, but it's really hard to do because, you know, it takes one person to go quit their job and start a company like this and see something that maybe others see is either impossible or you can kind of work your way through it. It's something else to then say that, like, maybe the way you thought of getting there isn't the best way. And that, that balance, I think, is, is really tough. And sometimes you get it right. And sometimes I get it right. And sometimes I I get it wrong. And I think the part that I've come to appreciate a little bit more is that I have to be more willing to listen to those ideas than I was when I was a younger man. Um, and maybe a little bit more uh, opinionated and, and, and bullheaded is that like, there's good ideas in there. And especially the, you know, the ideas that come from, You know, the three different people you talk to and you say, oh, that part of that and that part of that can make this, which is greater than the sum of the parts. And those are good ideas. And, um, we've had like a couple of examples. One of them was, you know, me deciding to put everything on the vehicle, have the team, you know, kind of push back and say, that's a horrible idea. And eventually now we've put all the power, all of the propulsion, everything under the vehicle because the trade studies work out, um, but you had to kind of convince people. And the flip side is, you know, one of the things on that vehicle, I thought we should do it a certain way. And uh, if we would have done it that way, we wouldn't exist existed as a company anymore, right? So that give and take of pushing people down a direction, but also realizing when, you, when you're when you not the expert or when there's a good idea, you should take it.
3: And like, on when to lead and when to follow. But you think about, it, you know, Chobb's um, quote, he learned that from experience. I mean, there's no doubt. And and he really learned it. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's such a great example of resilience where a guy shoots himself in the foot and then comes back stronger.
1: Yeah, that has but it has a little bit of constant like ache in his foot from that from that shot because uh, that that's the thing because there's been a couple times where you know I've made uh, the mistake like two or three times and you think man I wish I would have. I wish that first one would have stung a little bit more because I would have been a little, little bit more conscious, but then you also in a way, maybe it's actually good that it did not because it does, it allows you to kind of rethink some things and maybe adjust because the constraints aren't the same constraints as they were anymore. Right. And uh, you know, I think that's, it's definitely, definitely a balance, but trying to go and, and then get outside your comfort zone and be willing to, to fail and be willing to, uh, to kind of, you know, die trying, so to speak is uh, it's, it's really different. I think it really becomes a lot more exposed when you get to being a leader at a company is that you can't be wishy-washy every little thing or every little piece of gray area that you might not clearly elucidate, or you might not um, clearly define becomes an issue becomes a systemic issue for the organization. And uh, being precise and being clear, I think has never been more, more present than it has been moving into a CEO role and certainly in the leadership of the company.
0: There's, there's a topic that we, I think we've poked at from every different angle, but maybe haven't, um, flushed it out. And I'm so curious from your perspective, Josh, just being in such a role of innovation, um, you know, with my clients with my coaching clients, when they come back to uh, a conversation that we've had prior, uh, maybe it's a, maybe it's a difficult conversation they need to have in their company or with their partner or something like that. And they come back and it's failed, or at least from their perspective, it's failed. And they're always a little put out when I celebrate it. And I'm like, yes, good. Great. What are, you know, what are we learning? What are we noticing? How do you know, where are you at now? And I'm, I'm curious, I'd love to hear your thoughts, both from the tech innovation space. In the leadership space of what role does failure play in innovation in successful innovation?
1: I think the failure part really it's, it's interesting from an organizational call tolerance point of view, like how does the organization tolerate failure versus how does the, the employee or the human, tolerate failure because everybody's failure is, is very, very different. And and some can, um, some can be emboldened by it. Some can turtle with it. Uh, But the thing that, that I think we've, we've experienced and, and it's actually really, really, I think an interesting question because um, the rate at which you can fail, I think is directly proportional to the rate at which you can succeed. And, the faster that you can, the faster that you can fail. Yeah. There's that, you know, faster you fail type of deal, but the faster at which you're failing, the closer you are to, I'll say getting to this, this ultimate correct outcome, but being able to do that in a way where, you know, largely speaking failure is not tolerated in the world very much anymore. Um, if you look at what was happening when they first started testing airplanes and testing rockets and things like that. Like you saw exploding rockets, you saw planes crashing, you saw all of these things, you know, people pushing the limits of understanding, right? And the now we got to, say it again.
3: That engine killed, I mean, it's really crazy. They had to do that by heuristics and, yeah. I read a book on it and it killed lots of people until they figured out how to make that thing work.
1: Yeah. And, and even, even now there's this, there's a bit of stigma with, with failure that like, Hey, it's going to take too long. Well, you know, I I live in a world where planes are very safe and trains are very safe, um, but they weren't safe at the beginning. Right. And, and lots of people got hurt and lots of people got, got, got killed because of people learning. Right. And, and now we're in a situation where we don't have to tolerate that anymore. Right. Because airplane, airplanes are safe and because trains are you know, reasonably safe and, and the like, but you look at what's happening in innovation now from basically flying vertical takeoff and landing vehicles to autonomous driving to things like Hyperloop. What are they having to do? We're having to enter a marketplace way on the side of the safety curve that innovation hundred years ago, didn't have to do. That's to all of our benefits, right? That's to the benefits of us as, as, as a, I'll say a, a cultured learned civilization, Uh, But it also comes at the, it comes with like a degree of conservatism. Right. And I think if you look at a company like, uh, like SpaceX with, with Starship, right. So they've been dropping them on the ground and blowing them up in the same way that it used to be like 70 years ago. And you see this group saying like, "Whoa, Whoa, why would I get on that? I've seen these explode. And it's like, things can be made to go safe after they're, after they failed. Right. And so how quickly can you learn? How quickly can you adapt? How quickly can you kind of go, go through this? And, but you have a bit of a, of a, of a kind of a learned behavior now and and, in the group, which is like, well, we can't fail at all. Right. We can't accidentally, you know, do this test in case it goes wrong. And you're really having to try to tell people it's, it's okay that if 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 you break this test that it's not the end of the company or whatever. But on the same time, your investors aren't particularly tolerant to failure either. Right. Like you said you're going to do this on this date. And I and it's like, well, sometimes everything goes right. And then sometimes, guess what? We learn something. And we're better off for it. But that meant we we blew past the date or we missed the date. Um, and so there's a balance, and, and you can see a couple of venture capitalists and investors that are more favorable in their outlook of failure create a different dynamic for companies than ones that are a bit more rigid in terms of you must deliver X, Y, and Z on, on time. And so how do you, you know, the job of a leader now is like how do you commit to a date knowing that between now and that date, you have to reinvent a number of things to make sure it gets work. And there's no guarantee that all of those things will be perfect. Um, And most of the time, people are investing in the teams to get there, but they have a, there's such a variety of things they can invest in, you know, they can take their money and put it into something that's less risky, right? Like, why invest in a Hyperloop if you could invest in, uh, you know, a new dating app? One is significantly more difficult versus something else. Arguably, you know, Hyperloop could have a much higher return, but the risk is also a lot higher. So, where do you find the right people, the right kind of patient capital to let you? you know, Dan, Dan likes to say, go from zero to one, do something for the first time, which is like, you know, the first time a a chef comes up with the recipe, it's probably not great. Um, And so how do you, how do you get to that one where it's like, oh, it's, it's one third cup flour it's two thirds cup sugar. You know, how do you get to that spot? Well, it started off with, you know, half a cup flour, four cups sugar, and that tasted terrible. So then you work your way to get to get to the area. But finding the right partners, finding the right team to do that, and then trying to instill that belief. It, it's a really, it's, a, it's an ever-moving dynamic, I think, inside of an organization.
3: So funny you use that metaphor. I was in a restaurant Sunday and this guy had this t-shirt on. He goes, I'm a baker. What's a baker? And in the back of it says, somebody who makes shit you can't.
1: <laughs> I like it. I like it.
0: <laughs> well, Josh, this has been... Amazing man, this is. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate your time and your generosity, your thoughtfulness in this conversation. I know, I know, I sent across uh, to some of your people a list of questions, and I don't think we touched one of them. So, thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for being willing to hang in the in the unknown and and just um, talk about. I, I'm such a fan of both what you guys are doing as Virgin Hyperloop, but also what you're doing as an individual and a leader and and I'm invested, man. I I want to see this thing happen and I'm so excited for when it does. And, uh, and that, just that I get to have somewhat of an inside scoop being, uh, loosely related to you and the work you're doing with Adrian and Dan, I just, I, I really appreciate and think the world of what you're up to and, and thank you for being a part of this conversation.
1: No, I, I appreciate it, Chad, Adrian and Dan. And I, it's, uh, know one of the one of the questions i I get asked quite a bit sometimes is like why do you you know why do you get back on the bike why do you keep going and uh i'll say like it is going to be a bumpy road but sometimes the people in the car make all the difference Mm. and that that journey of like kind of going through is when you get to the bumps you find the team and, and it makes it all the more success or sweet when you get to those successful moments because like you've got people who really understood kind of the trials and tribulations. And, uh, I think, uh, one of the things I just wasn't ready to do at the very beginning was like ask for help. And I think, um, I'm probably more willing to ask for help now. Still not very much, but like a lot more willing than I was even a couple of years ago, maybe even a couple of days ago. Um, so, you know, trending in the right direction is all you can ask for, you know, sometimes.
3: And, uh, I think we're
1: doing that here at, at Hyperloop now. So, well,
3: Josh, I, I know you're really busy, and I was really excited that you accepted our invitation, and I appreciate your time. It was, it's You're one of my most, or, or, for me, one of the most inspiring clients we have because you're just relentless as all get out. Yeah. And and you're, the authenticity and your willingness to state what you really see, whether it's there or not, really makes it easy to work with you. So we really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I also appreciate you saying I can be easy to work with from time to time, Dan. That's a good ego boost.
2: <laughs> <laughs> At all times. He's speaking of future right now. He's yeah. like he's ready. he's willing a future into existence.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, no. I mean, I, but just echo the same, man. Your willingness to take on the complexity—that's I mean—that's what you signed up for uh, back when it was just an idea, and then when it became real and now is continuing on iteration after iteration after iteration after iteration and team growth and team, you know, morphing and all the things that are, that are shifting, um, you know, that's powerful and willingness for your willingness to take that on, on a consistent basis. You guys can probably hear my dogs. They're also cheering you on,
1: (laughs) uh,
2: Josh, but anyway, so keep at it, man. We'll still be in your corner as long as you'll have us, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks being here, Josh. Bye-bye, everybody.
0: Well, my friends, thank you so much for listening to yet another conversation on the Naked Leadership Podcast. Your listenership and commitment to the podcast means the world to us. If this podcast or these conversations has helped or inspired you in any way, would you mind going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and a glowing review? This helps us grow the movement and reach more leaders and teams. Finally, the greatest compliment that you can give us is sharing the podcast with your teams and the other leaders in your life. Until next week, bye-bye, everybody.